Hi, I'm Sohel, a migration researcher. I'm very happy to be able to introduce you and invite you into the Qualitative Open Mic podcast. Today, we are having the last episode in our series on ethics. We're looking at how we can do ethical qualitative health research. And with us today, we have Nishita. Nishita has done some really pioneering research looking at the cultural relevance or not of ethical codes and the ethical codes we use to conduct our research. So I would like to invite you, Nishita, to introduce yourself and your work. Uh, hi, Sahil. This is Nishita Nair, and uh, I'm, uh, um, I work at the Institute of Education as the UCL's Faculty of Education and Society as the Research Ethics Officer, um, where I help applicants um, process uh, ethics applications. I work really closely with the um, chair of the ethics committee and the ethics committee themselves to uh, develop guidance and uh, yeah um, help help applicants um, you know navigate ethical issues in their research. And it's good to be here. Brilliant! It's lovely to have you. So, um, how does one get into doing ethics as a job? Is that something you set out to do when you started your sort of academic career, or how did you get into it? So I, uh, my most previous job was uh, at the NIHR. So I worked as a uh, manager for one of their research programs there. And uh, I think I was always interested in, in, in health research, particularly. But then, uh, I don't know, it was sort of a mid-career sort of change. And, uh, you know, I got interested in ethics. Uh, we're all interested, isn't it? in what's right for you may not be right for me. What's the correct way? Um, you know, so it's, it's those kind of uh, thoughts motivated me to take up a master's in bioethics at King's College London. And I simultaneously began working at the Institute of Education as the ethics officer. I was going to say, this might sound like a bit of an obvious and, and, and sort of stupid question, but I want to know why does it matter so much if things are right in the realm of qualitative research ethics? Why does it matter? Well, I think uh, we live in a really complicated world and, um, you know, things are changing all the time. You know, ethics has become so important. I think these conversations about what is right, what makes something ethical and how to live ethically plague people. We, we talk about it, you know, in, in, in so many different realms from science to technology to health. It's just a fascinating question. I think it's an intriguing and fascinating question. And it's an amazing journey to go on because I think that's what it is. It's really um, the discovery rather than arriving at that destination of what's right but it's it's really enjoyable and I love doing what I do. Brilliant and can you tell me a bit more about what you do in terms of uh, research that you've just done? Yeah so um, we all know that uh, ethnic minority communities tend to suffer worse health and social outcomes compared to the majority population uh, but yet there seems to be a lack of good quality research data on minority communities so we can understand the reasons behind these inequalities and develop services to alleviate the inequalities. And I think boils down to this lack of participation in research. And there's lots of literature available on uh, these several barriers to the participation of ethnic minority communities in research um, in the UK. So you've got like the more obvious barriers like language, maybe financial barriers, certain cultural and religious barriers, which we seem to, to maybe easier to overcome with 
translation all with certain um, appropriate incentives uh, so that they participate in research. And then there are the more complex barriers like the fear, mistrust and suspicion, uh, which has been caused by historical and contemporary injustices, which are a lot harder to navigate. And I mentioned I worked at the NIHR previously, that's the National Institute for Health Research, where I was also the chair of the uh, EDI committee. And we all had these conversations about how to improve the participation of minority communities in research. And I thought there was a lot of literature available. There's lots of conversations, but there were no real solutions or no concrete solutions as to how to, to address this gap. And I found that really quite surprising and frustrating at the same time, because we, we kept having these same conversations and seemed to be going around in circles. So moving on, like I said, I became interested in ethics, uh, started doing this uh, master's in bioethics at King's, uh, work, working at the IOE as a research ethics officer. And for my dissertation, I decided to revisit this question. Think about what guidance are we giving researchers when they go into the field and do this work with ethnic minority communities? How are we helping them address these barriers to participation? Um, but also, I just think there is a moral reason. I mean, are we treating ethnic minority communities ethically? And so I, uh, you know, embarked on this research. Uh, my research question was, do social research ethics codes and institutional ethics practices aid researchers in their work with ethnic minority communities in the UK? What aspects were beneficial? Where are the barriers or the gaps? But moreover, do these codes and the processes that we've developed around these codes actually guide ethical thinking? So I um, did some semi-structured qualitative interviews with eight social science researchers across King's and the Institute of Education. And just for the sake of, of you know, the listeners who may not be aware, um, so these ethics codes that I'm talking about are research ethics guidelines that are developed by professional learned societies, such as a Social Research Association, the British Educational Research Association, uh, the British Psychological Society, etc. And uh, these codes really, uh, they have shaped the institutional ethics review processes. So it's like the codification of these codes in practice, if you like. So my question is essentially, are those codes and the processes culturally competent? And I must say, Sohail, I mean, the literature that's there is very, very limited. We were having this conversation, you know, earlier on. And what, what literature is out there is really written from the biomedical context. So very little on the social sciences. So why do you think the literature is limited in this area? It seems like it's such an important thing to, to know about. So why is there a gap in the first place? So the reason is that ethics codes originated from the biomedical space. Uh, if you think about, you know, the uh, declaration of Helsinki, I mean, that was the, the beginning of ethics codes, which began in the biomedical space. And then it kind of infiltrated into the social sciences and social sciences was largely unregulated before. And it's only now that, uh, you know, this this whole uh, kind of ethics review of social sciences, it's, it's quite a re recent thing. Great. Well, I think it's about time we hear about your research and, and the findings that came out of it. So please, please hit me. All right. So in terms of the social research ethics codes, now, like I've said, they originated with the Belmont Report in 1979. So this was after uh, the, you know, the United uh, Nations, the, the Charter for Human Rights, uh, Declaration of Helsinki. And this was the first document that actually governed the ethics of social science research. 
And because um, it was, again, it was all kind of rooted from the codes within the biomedical space, there are the influences of principalism within the codes. Uh, so principalism is an ethical theory that was proposed by Beecham and Childress. Uh, you've got the four foundational ethical principles, the respect for autonomy, non-maleficence, so intent not to cause harm, beneficence, you know, you want to promote benefits, and justice. But it does state that should the principles come into conflict with each other, respect for autonomy must always prevail. And so it really betrays its, you know, individualistic Western leaning, uh, you know, which is really difficult uh, when you try to translate these concepts um, into, um, you know, research uh, within collectivist societies that prioritize the benefits to the community over individual gains. You know, the researchers in my study spoke about issues seeking informed consent, securing confidentiality arrangements. Again, very, very individualistic concepts, which are really difficult to translate. The importance to non-maleficence, so you really the focus on not causing harm, but not enough focus on really uh, realizing benefits, which are very important to these communities. And if you think about justice, Suhail, I mean, uh, you know, the codes understand it as the equitable distribution of burdens and benefits. But what about, you know, addressing inequality? So, you know, one may choose not to participate because of some, you know, issues with mistrust or some longstanding fear and, and you know, those kind of issues. And the codes would say, well, that is just if somebody declines participation, you know, you have to respect their autonomous choice. But is it really? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have this holistic idea about how to sort of deal with justice in this space. Uh, another thing about principalism is it professes a sort of uni a universality to ethical norms with the white majority norms taken as the norm and any deviance from that is considered improper. But like we said before, again, morality is fluid. Um, what is right in one culture may not be right in another. There's so many difficulties translating these codes, which has actually led to certain indigenous communities in New Zealand, Australia and Canada, developing their own ethical guidance on how they wish to be treated when they are being, you know, uh, engaging with researchers in those countries. So what, what are those principles then from these communities? How do they differ? So I, they bring in a little bit more of their sort of cultural understanding of these, uh, you know, ethical principles, and they feed it into the code. So they don't change it entirely, but they sort of build on the codes. So for example, I was talking about, um, you know, the importance of uh, benefits, and not just harm. So I think it is the Maori community that has really, um, you know, um, designed codes where they have uh, brought in their own people uh, to actively participate in the research. So, for example, to, to feed into the research design, take on active roles within um, the research process, uh, work in the dissemination of the results. So those kind of things. So it's really about an adaptation and feeding into uh, what we have already to make it sort of better suited to those cultures. And I think the one thing that I thought was really interesting about principalism uh, that, that came up in the research is there's a very intellectual kind of way of ethical decision making. So really, if you think about the principles, it's about balancing those principles to see which one should really prevail. And it's a very kind of like calculative, a very more, a very kind of um, intellectual way of thinking about ethics, which does detract people from the emotional side of things. 
uh, and, and how that feeds into the ethical uh, process. So if you think about research with ethnic minority communities, they hinge upon building trusting relationships with these communities. So if you tell a researcher to remove that emotional kind of engagement, then it's really not a, a, an effective way to engage them in um, dialogue that would be meaningful. I must say that the researchers, the one thing that the researchers said about the codes were that they were quite broad and open to interpretation and really offered them the flexibility of ethical conduct in the field. And, to, you know, I had some researchers say that they had used the codes to really um, sort of justify certain ethical processes, whether it was verbal consent or the use of subterfuge. So they used those kind of processes to defend, uh, you know, their research, to sort of defend that to the committee. And they stood by that and they were really pleased to find these within the ethics codes. So that that's the kind of, uh, yeah, uh, bits that I found around uh, the ethics codes, really the influence of principalism being a, a problem. Okay. And so you're suggesting that maybe the principles, the biomedical, bioethical principles that a lot of research ethics is currently based on could be reformed and built upon, I guess. But is that enough? Is that because it still feels to me like you're anchoring the codes in these principles, why not start from scratch? No, that's. I think that's a good point, Suhail. So there are the codes, and then they're how they're interpreted, uh, interpreted, and how they are practiced. So how does this actually become part of the process? So that's again a place where there is a breakdown um, in terms of how we digest uh, the ethics behind these codes. So whether there is a problem with the codes or whether there's a problem with the way they are kind of taken up is the question. And I think, I mean, from my research anyway, the codes seem to really, you know, uh, there is a, an agreement of what what is the right thing to do. Researchers found that very useful. But what they did want is for it to be flexible. And that's, I think, where the, the adaptation element comes in. There's probably no need to reinvent the wheel, um, uh, but uh, it's about thinking of using what we have uh, to best suit our needs. Thank you for that. Please, uh, let's hear about the other findings. Now, I must say, like with my work at the at the IOE, I'm really familiar with the ethics review processes. And it's always, uh, we think about how to make them better for the researchers. We don't want to make them burdensome, burdensome. We want to make them useful and we want to help researchers where we can. Okay. So from my research, the researchers found the actual ethics application process quite useful in the planning stages of the project. So when it came to thinking about ethical issues and how to mitigate the risks uh, around those ethical issues, so they really went into the field prepared and they were quite like happy to have gone through the ethics application. But <laughs> there were uh, quite a few barriers to ethical thinking. So they said, well, it helped them, but it didn't really instigate ethical thinking. So if you think about an ethics application form, it's a really static, non-continuous sort of document that makes you um, think about your research at the beginning, but it really doesn't make you consider, you know, those those other elements uh, that, that may arise as your research evolves, because research is unexpected and you kind of, you know, uh, you may, may face things you wouldn't have known um, when you began your work. 
Also, like, I think a form, I mean, it's really hard to get away from the bureaucracy of a form, filling a form. And and I wonder if this sort of kind of has added to all the other uh, research administration uh, that we um, have, have encountered in the past many years when it comes to bidding for research or initiating research processes. And I wonder if ethics kind of slots in there, um, you know, for, for researchers anyway. But but here's something that's also it was quite interesting. <laughs> so reviewers really in you know when they are reviewing an ethics form, they really have no um they they don't have any understanding of the research setting. And this is because I think the form in itself is really hard for applicants to kind of talk about all these things within the limited space available within an ethics form. And this is where things like situational ethics are gaining prominence in uh, educational and social research, where they state that ethical thinking is really um, incomplete uh, without attention to research context and when based on ethical principles alone. Um, so again, another drawback with using the form. <laughs> and I, I think another thing I think that's really important, which was really sad to, to, to sort of note, was there is a relationship breakdown between applicants and the REC members and the reviewers. And again, several reasons for this, which uh, came up in my research, but has also been documented in the literature. Things that came up, like one of the things, the top things were the perceptions by researchers that the ethics review process was geared towards institutional protection and not participant protection, serving more of an audit sort of function. Another thing was also there were like um, paternalistic attitudes of reviewers sometimes uh, that led to the overprotection of research participants and caused barriers to research and caused that friction. And also there, were, there, there are like trust issues. So there is evidence of the lack of trust some research, some reviewers have on researchers uh, to do their job ethically. And this is something that was perceived by researchers themselves. So all of this doesn't really help. This issues of mistrust doesn't help engage with the, the application process. And is there a structural legacy? Why? How do we get here? So you said that. So again, is is it that biomedical route that that got us here? Are there any other things along the way that enforced this kind of rigid structure? No, it, it, I think it's the biomedical route. So uh, it was. So it started off in the biomedical space, and unfortunately, there was a standardization of ethics review processes uh, without appreciating the differences of social sciences. And this is what's caused us to, to to get here. And if you think about like social sciences, they were like largely unregulated uh, before. And I don't know. I mean, again, this is something I'm not really sure of, but it could be actually pressures from funders uh, that have actually, uh, you know, um, led us along this path of standardization where we need to to, to protect participants, protect institutions. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say, but it, I, I definitely think the biomedical kind of there's this importation from the biomedical context, which is to blame. <laughs> That's my opinion. Well, thank you. Um, are there any? Is there anything else from your research findings that that y you want to highlight that really stood out and was? Yep. So, so in terms of the again the ethics review processes. So yeah, we were talking about the biomedical influences, and I can like elucidate a little bit further. So this focus on non maleficence, minimizing harm, very important from the biomedical sort of space, but. In social sciences, I'm not saying that there isn't the risk of harm, but the risk of harm may be smaller, or we may need to actually think about some other ethical considerations. Uh, you know, the, this focus of harm or minimizing harm can sometimes be, uh, I don't know, it just, it, it, are we focusing on the right things? I think that's the question. So 
that focus and unfortunately has led to ethics processes that are not proportionate to the risk uh, you see within social sciences. And that's something that was highlighted by one of the researchers within this study. Um, and again, I think particularly interesting for your um, listeners, positivist orientation of reviewers. Um, so if if rec committees tend to be staffed by, um, um, you know, reviewers that are more closer to uh, methodologies used within the medical spaces, it's present in the liter literature and it's also been highlighted by researchers in the study that there are difficulties approving qualitative projects, uh, particularly participatory action research, ethnography. Um, you know, so you've got long review timelines, you have harsher criticism, and sometimes, you know, um, applicants receiving comments that are actually incongruous to the aims or the purpose of the research, which is really off-putting and quite alienating. So we've, we've also been speaking, so apart from the biomedical space, we've also spoken about that Western uh, thinking and the, the Western philosophical kind of influences on the ethics codes, on the ethics processes. And, and while the codes, like I said, was quite broad, the institute institutional ethics processes you know the influences of that western thinking or the what 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 is acceptable to the norm the majority like that's what came up in the research is quite heavily ingrained within institutional processes and researchers found that part much harder to navigate so i can give you some examples cumbersome particip uh, participant information sheets and consent forms now we have information sheets that are lumbered with gdpr ethical regu and regulatory compliance etc which frankly are really hard to translate uh, into other languages it's really hard to communicate to people with lower levels of education. Very, very difficult, uh, again, to, uh, to, to communicate to oral speakers who have different ways of knowledge acquisition. The signing of consent forms, you know, for asylum seekers or refugees, um, reluctance to, you know, the reluctance for them to sign um, written documentation is very well evidenced. And yet we have these processes uh, that, that have somehow stuck, which really complicate the lives of, of the researchers that go into these spaces. Our research, my researchers also spoke a lot about, um, you know, issues with co-production and collaborative research. Um so again, uh, things that came up were the conflict of ethical principles that were used at the institutional level and those that were uh, on the ground, you know, that were experienced by the communities themselves. So there seems to be differences in the way people prioritize the ethical principles. So, you know, going to your question about should we revamp it completely? I don't know. I mean, I think the principles are quite sound. The principles are useful and valuable, but it's about how do we focus on them? What do we focus on? And what do we prioritize? I think those are the questions that would really be important to ask. And again, in relation to co-production uh, and collaborative work, uh, when publishing, lots of issues came up. So universities generally want you to keep your participants anonymous, but then when they're involved in collaborative research, they may want to be known. But then what do you do when, uh, you know, revealing their identities could cause them harm? Uh, particularly if they are vulnerable. So these are questions that really are not covered by the ethics processes. And, uh, you know, they, because they come from this very Western thinking, individualistic sort of background, which is very uh, suitable to the majority population, but they, they've really missed the, the mark on uh, dealing with the issues when working with ethnic minority communities. So can I ask, did you interview people from ethics committees in as part of your research? Or have you had a chance to put some of these points to people on ethics committees? I just want to get the get 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 the sort of um, 
other perspective because for me from my side and i was one of your interview participants it feels like things aren't going the way they should be especially around things like participatory research but do people who sit on ethics committees feel like that do they feel like there's a need for change as well i think they do I think especially, and this is the thing, I mean, uh, within the IOE, we have a special, uh, sorry, a separate ethics committee for social sciences. Again, great start, you know, not to have uh, social science uh, research reviewed by uh, committees that are more used to uh, reviewing medical sciences. And there is appetite for change. And again, I'll come to that perhaps a bit later, but we are having these discussions, but it's really important for all of us to get involved and have these conversations. So I would be uh, definitely presenting this work to my committee and seeing where we can make the changes and how. But it's also important for social scientists, people involved in participatory action research and ethnography to come forward and engage with their uh, ethics committees. Uh, so there is like a burden of responsibility, I think, that we all share uh, so that we can um, drive this change. We're not there yet. I agree. So here, <laughs> but we have an appetite to to sort of instigate that change and we should welcome the opportunity. Great. Thank you. So I think there's a couple more points around your research findings around positionality, also the popularity of virtue ethics. If you, if you could explain these, I'd be very grateful. Yeah. So I was really, um, you know, I think one of the gaps I found in both the codes and the processes were really considerations to positionality and reflexivity. And both of these, uh, you know, almost all the researchers I interviewed said how important it was to steer ethical thinking in this space. So if you think about positionality, you know, researchers would think about what they brought to the research, how it influenced the research process, and, you know, the way it helped them with their research with the minority communities. It ensured that, you know, the relevant team members were included. So it really helped them build cultural competence of the research team. It helped them navigate power imbalances, uh, not just cultural, but also educational, social health imbalances. And it helped them deal with any potential negative sentiments of their research being extractive. And they did this by having open and honest conversations with their participants and being very clear about what the expected achievements were at the end of the research process. So you really had to think about position, your positionality before you went into the research field and before you uh, engaged with your participants. Same goes with reflexivity. Again, understanding your own biases and assumptions. It helped it can help you sort of challenge any negative or unhelpful prejudices you may have, which is essential for you to progress your work. And given the space is so complex and very unpredictable, unless you en engage in that continuous ethical um, thinking, uh, you know, the reflexive thinking about whether what you're doing is sound, is ethical, is really checking in with yourself, is really key. So reflexivity, again, missing from, from the ethics review process particularly. But again, that may be down to the structure as we discussed before. But I was really pleased, like, I, I will betray my love for virtue ethics, uh, but I'll go ahead anyway. Uh, so um, researchers, you know, they were really driven by personal values and belief systems and an intrinsic understanding of what was right. And a lot of this came up you know, by, for example, their desire to achieve social good, by all the activities they were involved in, even beyond their research, 
they really stressed on the justification for the need for the research, you know, how over, over researching these communities had not just led to fatigue, uh, but also like harm due to stigmatization, uh, you know, through the associ- association of certain negative conditions with these communities. And they all seem to have this amazing, genuine appreciation and curiosity about cultural diversity. And all of these values, I think, really fed into their ethical thinking. And this is why I think there is, uh, you know, uh, virtue ethics is great gaining prominence in terms of how to develop ethical thought. Uh, but unlike principalism, it does not impose principles, uh, but it stays. It states that this, you know, the virtues or good qualities are deeply entrenched within an individual, so deeply entrenched within the researchers themselves. And it's only, you know, with the practice of these virtues, of these qualities, that we learn to be ethical. The last thing I just want to say in terms of my findings was researchers really learned from the practice of ethics in the field. So whether it was by their, uh, you know, conversations uh, with their peers, so they learn from the experiences of their colleagues who had worked in similar spaces, or even the student supervisory relationships. So students were really influenced by their supervisor's ethical conduct, and supervisors were really um, interested and and went on this ethical journey with their students, uh, you know, and engaged with the ethical process through the experiences their students had. So again, it's really practice in the field that 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 was relied upon uh, to develop ethical thought. There seems to be a mutual sort of learning process going on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're all learning from each other. And and so that's the the kind of, um, you know, uh, and, and that's where, you know, in terms of my recommendations, I'm happy to sort of go on to next. If Please talk about recommendations. I think you, you've mentioned some around um, sort of having specialized ethics boards and the importance of positionality and reflexivity. But is there anything else that we really need to get on with, basically? Yeah. So I think in terms of, you know, in terms of the codes, so like I first spoke about the ethics codes, and I think they're not useless. They're very valuable. But I think we really should increase the visibility of these codes, you know, either through the application process or through certain training initiatives, uh, you know, research ethics training initiatives really talk about these codes. But if there were any improvements, I think, we need to increase the input from social scientists. And this is something the Academy of uh, Social Sciences is working on. I think processes, the ethics processes are important. Uh, as much as we, we we have to admit that malpractices do happen, Sohail, and um, they'll always happen. And we need certain processes to keep certain, I think, uh, behaviours in check. But you know, one of the things that, that we're consult- considering at the IOE is a, an approval in principle sort of process uh, where uh, researchers can come up with their basic research before they have done the collaboration presented to the ethics committee, get the approval, a sort of initial approval, if you like, and then revisit, you know, the committee after they have done their work with the participants. So after the collaboration has taken place. So that kind of thing, but it's, you know, there are innovations and adaptations, but it's really unlikely to happen if you don't have social scientists working within these spaces. Um, You could also increase the diversity of the committee. I think that's an obvious one. Uh, Really important to diversify the methodological expertise, particularly qualitative research, participatory action research, ethnography. But I must say, Sohail, I think, you know, these codes and processes do not sit in isolation and they need to be layered with opportunities for researchers 
to engage in effective ethical dialogue and by that i mean bringing in those conversations on positionality and reflexivity inviting considerations to the practice of ethics in the field shedding light on those intrinsic qualities and personal attributes that researchers relied on to guide ethical conduct but how do we do this i frankly think we've become like much too ambitious with what the ethics processes can do so we've really kind of uh, you know we make them shoulder the burden of this responsibility of guiding ethical thinking so my proposal would be to really strip back any bureaucracy associated with the expectation of ethics processes guiding ethical thinking to keep it really light touch and really basic so that the the you know the the basic sort of standards regulatory ethical the, the basic things are met but to supplement the process with formal spaces for uh, researchers um, and the rec committee members to come together and discuss and share ethics best practice and again it's important to say that there needs to be proper time allocation uh you know for such activities and appreciation uh, of the efforts that go into these activities so there is some kind of investment involved there but i really think that the reward will be uh, some true ethical capacity building that will extend beyond research with ethnic minority communities but really really get to the heart of ethical thinking brilliant thank you so much uh, what a what a lovely way to end things i just want to say thank you so much that 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 this is the last episode in the series and it's a really beautiful message to leave off with and it's so interesting you ended with saying um spaces there needs to be formal spaces for um researchers and ethics committee members to come together and discuss um well i can suggest an informal space where uh, ethics committee members are more than welcome and that's uh with the inspiring ethics group which is um a quark collaboration so please look on the quark collaborations and the website if you want to come along and have some of these discussions and build on some of the amazing work that nishita has been doing so thanks very much for your time and thanks everyone for listening to this series the next series is going to be on interpreting qualitative data it promises to be a banger and i will see you there thank you